Hello and welcome to the special edition of AutoLine, coming to you from the floor of the 2011 North American International Auto Show in Detroit. You know, two years ago, coming to the show was like going to a funeral. Everybody knew that things were about to get bad, and boy, did they ever. And there was a sense of doom and gloom that permeated the auto show. Last year, all the survivors were here and glad that they made it through that big downturn, but they were still shell-shocked, numb from the experience. This year, you cannot believe the sense of optimism and vibrancy that there is at this auto show. And to give you a little bit of a taste of what that's all about, we've got four terrific interviews lined up for today's show, starting with Adrian Hallmark, the global brand manager for Jaguar. Next up, Jim Kensiskis, the president and CEO of the supplier company IAC North America. Next up after that is Scott Strong, the head of all interior design at the Ford Motor Company, and then I'll be speaking with Tom Dahl, the executive vice president of Subaru of America. So don't go away. We'll be bringing you right back here to the floor of the Detroit Auto Show right after this. From the North American International Auto Show in downtown Detroit, Michigan, here now is John McElroy. And here we are now with Adrian Hallmark, the Global Brand Director for Jaguar. And great having you here, Adrian. It's great to be here, John. Thank you. What's the sense in Jaguar now being owned by Tata? I mean, it, it, it's almost like the full cycle of the Raj. Now the Indians own this British company. But what's the feeling within Jaguar with the new owners? It's quite interesting because um, I think if you look back a couple of years, Ford owned the company and put a lot of money into the, the brand. There's no question Billions. about that. Yeah. So, just like many of these buyouts, the question is, well, how can they make it work if they didn't? Um, I think the, the, the view of Tata is that, as a company, we know what we need to do to be successful. We think we do. Uh -huh. um, we have the funding to do it. We have an agreement with the unions, which is very important for us, uh -huh. to sustain our existing factory footprint even though we may build on that further in the future. So we have a good rapport between the workforce, the owners, management, that mix. We have a clear investment strategy for the future, and that's what counts. You know, we're not going to share parts with Tata in the foreseeable future, because the product ranges and the segments are so different, Completely. we can't share anything. No. But the, the freedom that they're giving us to really shape and develop this company is incredible. Uh, and that's a big responsibility that we have to pay back. So it is a big uh, turn, turn up for the books. Um, watch this space. <laughs> we will watch the space. Jaguar has never gotten into the SUV segment or crossover segment. You know, the argument always being, well, that's what Land Rover's for. Is there space for Jaguar to get into, uh, encroach a little bit on, on the historic segment that Land Rover was always in? I think um, if you asked five people in the company, you get six answers. Um, and depending on which side of the company they're in, you get 10 answers. Well, let's ask uh, the guy who's in charge of the brand. Okay, so from my point of view, categorically, yes, uh, there is space. I gotta for believe concept. your dealers would love to have that, dealers the world over. I think the way you pose the question uh, is very interesting because um, what we would do if we went in that direction is not do anything that Land Rover, Range Rover does. Mm -hmm. And the, the starting point for me is that most consumers see the brands as totally separate. Absolutely. The fact that they were under one roof is of no consequence to the average Jaguar or the average Range Rover buyer. Mm -hmm. There's some minor benefits. 
I think there are more that we can find in the future on the marketing side, but that's another story. But from a pure product point of view, if I'm looking at a Mercedes or a Jaguar, I'm not looking at a Land Rover Range Rover. I'm looking at Mercedes Jaguar. So if we can't offer the right products to compete with our competitors, then we're not going to compete with them. Somebody else will. So the crossover segments are the biggest growth segments in the premium end of the marketplace. They're not the biggest volume yet, mm -hmm. but they're the biggest growth, and especially in the developing markets, and especially in China, etc. And they're strong in the US. So I think there is place in the portfolio, yes. We don't yet have a business plan that includes a product such as that, but we absolutely are thinking about it and looking at the feasibility. And you can see what Callum has done with the XJ, with the XF, with the CX-75 concept car, um, you can only imagine what that car could look like. And let's so. talk about the CX in just a moment, but sticking with this, this idea of getting into the crossover or SUV segment, Land Rover, of course, is the ultimate in off-roading, or one of the ultimates in off-roading. If you want to go through the Darien Gap or the Rubicon Trail, you can take it. Jaguar doesn't have to do that. So you could have an SUV or crossover with a completely different personality. Sure, and road-based, not trail-based. Mm -hmm. Um, although, you know, it's the, it's the, not the joke, but it's the, the common currency in the UK that, um, you know, most people who drive 4 by 4s are not farmers. Yeah. Yeah, they tend <laughs> to be uh, luxury cars that have all-round capability. Mm -hmm. So I think that the clear differentiation between uh, a, a multi-purpose vehicle for, um, for, for Jaguar versus Range Rover, there's clear differentiation, no mm -hmm. question. But again... It's not defined, we are working on it. I, I definitely would support it, but I haven't seen the business case, the numbers, we've got to do all the yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, a lot of work to be done yet. Let's talk about the CX-75, because I saw that at the Paris show, I was knocked out. What a just drop-dead gorgeous car. And of course it's a concept and, yep. and whatnot, but what are the thoughts uh, at all of maybe perhaps bringing that to production? On a number of levels, it's, uh, it's valuable to us because, first of all, the lightweight structure is something which we're avidly pursuing for CO2 and emission reasons for our core road vehicles. So we want to bring a lot of lightweight technologies into the road cars um, for the future. Rigid structures, very light and efficient to help with our sustainability needs. Um, the styling of it was until you see the physical thing as you obviously did you can't really understand the vehicle mm -hmm. on the images it looks great mm -hmm. but when you physically see it the car is amazing it takes your breath away the proportions and the yeah. size of it right so from an emotional point of view the design language it proves that you don't have to have lots of fins and wings to make something inspirational um, so i think the the design language of cx75 will come through in something but the other bit the third element is what was underneath it yes two gas turbines which nobody expected. At all, not at all. 80,000 RPM, 75 kilowatts of generation power, with four electric motors, each having 195 horsepower, so 790-ish total horsepower for the vehicle, 3.4 seconds to 60, with an electronic drive system. Well, that's terrific, Adrian. Thanks so much for stopping by and talking with us. Very exciting to hear what's going on at Jaguar. I love talking to you about My it. My pleasure. It, it's, a, it's a historic brand. We only want to see it do better. Me too, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks so much, Adrian. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the show. Thank you.
a bit about technology trends in the interior that IAC is involved in. Again, where are the automakers asking you to go? Or yep. where are you saying, hey guys, look what we can give you and pulling them along? Yeah, you know, John, I, there's a lot of technology and we, and we keep talking about interiors, but I think I'm going to go a little direction, off direction sure. that people don't think about for a minute. Mm -hmm. The interior is also where most of your acoustics management's at as well. And, it, and it, typically it's either in the barrier type of product or it's in an absorption type of product. Now again, not to overuse the word, but to zoom back for a second. Now think about, you got all these vehicles that are going hybrid or they're going electric. You know, your sound frequency is going to completely change. It doesn't mean it's not manageable, but it's it's completely different. So what we also do is complete NVH management. We have a major, major facility right here in Plymouth, Michigan, but across the world we have one over in Europe, so on and so forth. So managing that, okay, so take that a step further. Now you're in your vehicle, you're going down the road, and whatever system you have, you're going to talk to your system. I don't want to call it any one customer here, yeah. but they all got their system, and let's say you're the consumer and you, you keep saying, John, 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 call John, and it doesn't work, right? But that's just the simplest of examples, right? You better have, and OEMs do, they're focused on this, they better have the best interior quietness out there. So we provide all sorts of products, we call it our silent solutions package, and it really manages the sound inside of a vehicle. Because what gets some people are unaware of, in an individual isolated location, you can throw all kinds of bells and whistles at it, doesn't do anything for NVH management as we call it. It is a system, it's what you do in the, it's what you do in the floor carpet to what you do as a dash insulator behind the IP and anything and even even NVH characteristics in the headliner these days different than you would have ever seen two or three years ago. Do you see differences between the developing nations and the mature ones in terms of what they want in an interior? Yeah, you know, everybody's a little bit different, it seems to me. I'll speak to the, the probably the most obvious example, at least in my world of interiors, is take the China market. There's so many folks that, uh, you know, are really riding in the backseat. They have drivers, whatever the case may be, so you naturally have more leg room. You spend a lot more focus in the rear compartment than you do with the front compartment of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Well, that completely changed the aspects of how you would even think about an interior. Mm -hmm. and the type of technology we would bring or innovation we would bring. And, and uh, boy, I'll tell you what, you know, two years ago, or I wouldn't have, and I've been doing this for way too long, I would have never thought about, like, what are we going to do to get craftsmanship and comfort in the rear <laughs> compartment of a vehicle? But guess what? That's where we're at, right? Yeah. How about the whole green movement, too? That plays into the area that you're in, at least yep. when it comes to recycling, if nothing else. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, everybody knows um, there's been a lot of uh, unfortunate casualties in the interior space. We know the names because, you know, petrochemical, you know, we basically you have the oil spike, guess what happens? Uh, the interior guys goes with it, right? Um, so what do we have to do? It comes back to my comments earlier on a lot of focus on material engineering and so forth, but what does that do? It gets you into reconstituted materials, um, it gets you into all sorts of hemp and canaf and all these type of products, and they're there. You just have to zoom back and you have to dedicate the resources. You may go to different parts of the world that you didn't, but I'll tell you what, where maybe a lot of people don't recognize, the globalization has so many other positive things that go with it. Let's say you're in India. We, we got a large penetration. We're, we're going we're gonna to build, we're going to probably, we're going to finish an acquisition there in the next couple days. We're building a couple plants there right now. Okay, Bangladesh is just north. All sorts of natural natural products that what never would have seemed reasonable to manage with from within, they're right around the corner. So it, it really works for us. So for all our viewers who are looking right now, talk a little bit about what we might see coming in interiors. And you don't have to give away yeah. you know, specific programs or customers or all that, but directionally, what do you think that we'll start seeing in, let's say, the next five years or within this decade? I think you're just going to see what you're seeing today. I really do. I think you're seeing it, you know, you're not completely saturated at the A, a level, B level, C level type of things. You're going to continue to see where leather is only on E today and be on A tomorrow. I mean, those type of 
things. You're going to continue to see that. You're going to expect that, you know, really weight's a big issue for it, John. It's one thing to say you can do this. Anybody can throw the kitchen sink at things. But how are you do? How can you do it? Because interiors is, let me kind of, kind of make a data, provide a data point for you. At least from the statistics I know, the second largest contributor to weight in a vehicle is actually resin-based composites. Is that right? It really is. So, okay, now interiors, what is it? A lot of resin-based, but we also do exteriors because that's really our business model. It's more tied into resin-based components versus trying to be, uh, you know, everything in the grocery store. So, okay, so if that's if that's where it's going and we manage that, uh, you got to take weight out because if you can take weight out, statistics, right? I think it's for the fuel consumption that, uh, that's in a car, 75% of it comes back to weight, right? Mm-hmm. So if we can find a way through all of our different products or something to help on taking out, let's say, 6 to 8% improvement in, in uh, weight, weight, you're going to make a massive impo- improvement as it relates to uh, fuel efficiency. So don't think for a second, not you, but in general, people shouldn't think for a second that the interiors guy can't make a major impact on fuel efficiency. And we know how important that is. Let's see. Uh, here's uh, one of the questions from yeah. our... Uh, viewers here. Legislative yep. Geek wants to know, can you tell us about glow-in-the-dark carpet? Yeah, we do. I've never heard about this. Oh, well, we need to show you. You need to come oh, over I and do. see us. I come see us, John. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, Glow-in-the-dark, black light, call it what you want. But it is really, it's a it's an innovation that we have um, that uh, is ready to go to market. And uh, the, the way to look at it, I'll paint a, paint a picture for you, is if you go into your trunk, how often do you drop your keys? It's behind a box and you can't find those things because a light happens to be in the upper left-hand corner, but your keys got dropped in the back right-hand corner. So what we've done is basically, in essence, to the to the uh, caller's uh, question there, is we've developed a glow-in-the-dark type of, of carpet. I, this i got to see. So it, it kind of makes the keys this. jump out. So, all good stuff. One more question yeah, before sure. we let you go. Uh, what recycled materials are you looking at uh, to use in an automobile? Uh, we use all sorts of recycled materials in, um, you know, the technical names I'll never get to. Yeah. I will tell you that anything that that ultimate consumer or any ultimate consumers out there from pop bottles to you name it, it we're recycling it in one form or fashion and turning it back into car parts. Well, real good. Jim, thanks so much for coming up here. This has been fantastic, and I've got to see this glow-in-the-dark carpet. I'd never heard of that before. Okay, great. Thank you. Jim, thanks so much for your time. Thank you Really appreciate it. Thanks. What's Ford's approach to doing interiors? Do you have the interior guys working side by side with the exterior? Have you decided to pull them apart? How are you working well, that? Interesting, you should uh, sort of ask that question because just recently we have uh, established a, uni- uh, a unique and dedicated interior studio for the global Ford products. And it's in part uh, to signal to ourselves that uh, we're going to put more focus on interiors and really. Uh, you know, begin that journey of, of, of lifting them from the very good interiors we have to the best in the world. So right now we, we have reclaimed a part of the design center that was once filled with office uh, cubicles and, and reestablished a, a, a purpose-conceived uh, interior design studio. It seems to me this sort of ebbs and flows in the industry over the decades. and. In the past, they've said, oh, the interior doesn't look like anything of the exterior. Yeah. So we have to put these groups together so that, you know, there's a, a commonality. And then there was like, oh, no, the exterior guys get all the money and the attention <laughs> and the glory. And then the interior guys are starved, so they get broken off. Yeah. How do you maintain this balance well, of making sure the interior goes with the exterior styling? Well, you've, you've certainly identified the perennial debate. <laughs> I, I think what we've d- done is looked at best practices and the companies 
companies we tend to admire most that are doing the best jobs are set up this way. And at Ford, we have a, I think we have a pretty tightly knitted uh, leadership team, uh, and it's uh, only about 100 paces from where I sit over to the, uh, the exterior side of the uh, courtyard. So I, we're, we're pretty confident that we can make sure that the interior fits inside that beautiful exterior. Ford's come under some criticism lately uh, from Consumer Reports because of the My Ford Touch. Do, does interior design get involved with that, or is that totally a separate entity? Well, we, we have very close partners in the electronic uh, uh, engineering group that uh, we collaborate with. Uh, my job is more in the things that you physically touch and interact with, but of course we have to provide the real estate for uh, the execution of those nice big touch screens and some of the other input devices and we do work very closely to get the ergonomics right and to make sure that everything's conceived and, and executed in a way that customers appreciate it. One thing Ford's getting right and a number of other automakers are too but it, or maybe I should step back a step and say one of the criticisms I have in some cars is that you can see that the radio guys didn't talk to the HVAC guys who didn't talk to the instrument cluster guys, and there's different graphics and colors, and, and yet some automakers get it all together. How are you working to make sure that you've got something that looks like it's homogeneous and not just a bunch of components stuck in well, there? Well, we have a lot of cross-functional reviews for everything from color harmony to you know all the things that you've just uh, rattled off. Uh, so uh, it's, again, a part of just doing a, a world-class job instead of a mediocre job. So we've, you know, we know we have enough examples of how things are done uh, incorrectly, uh, and we certainly can uh, identify uh, those companies, including some of our own products, where we've done a really good job. So again, it comes back to best practices and understanding how to improve on all of those things. Can you tell us anything that really excites you that you see coming in the interior? As I said, we just had Jim Kampsiskas from yeah. uh, uh, IAC, and he's talking about glow-in-the-dark carpeting. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the world of electronics has definitely uh, arrived inside of the car. You know, we've seen recently ambient lighting and, and just uh, the, thought, the thoughtful application of all of those sorts of things. Um, I'm driving the new Edge, and uh, both I and my wife really appreciate the, the blind spot indications in the mirrors. There's... I mean, electronics has just opened a, a, a huge opportunity to make cars safer to drive, more interesting to drive, and so we're exploring all of those options. Trying to be carefully, uh, fairly intelligent about the, how we select some of those things so that, uh, so that they are truly value-added and, and, and not just, you know, so they're for uh, short-term entertainment value, but actually improve the, uh, ex the driving experience. Speaking of the edge, I love the interior in that car, especially like the IP yeah. and how the, the top of the IP matches up with the front face yeah. of it. There's, I don't know what it is about it. My eye just loves that yeah. look. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I've, I'm delighted with it, too. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very thoughtfully conceived interior. It's, uh, it's not overly busy, but there's plenty of things to kind of, uh, you know, attractive things to feast your eyes on and uh, plenty of uh, thoughtfulness around space and accommodation and so forth. I'm enjoying it as well. Good deal. Well, Scott, thanks so much for coming up My here pleasure, and talking to me. Always, always good always, to see you. Yeah, likewise. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year, yeah. What are some of the thoughts as where you might go product-wise? That's, that's a good question because we are talking about that and which way, which way we can potentially take this thing. 
we really haven't decided yet whether or not we want to take it up into that oh, next level yeah. in terms of size because we've got a nice we've got a nice uh, uh, situation going the way that it is now. So we want to make sure that that whatever we do is going to be sustainable. That it's going to be an investment that we can we can make and get a good return on that investment. We don't want to do anything that's going to, okay, we want to go to a larger size vehicle, but then we're not going to be able to get the volume that we need to make the numbers work. Globally, how's Subaru doing? I'm, I'm only familiar really with how it's performing in the U.S. market. What about the rest of the world? Fantastic. This same same story all over same, again? Same story. Uh, Subaru's setting records in China, Australia, Canada. Uh, you know, maybe not doing as well in the Japanese market. Well, but nobody is. Nobody is. But but really, Fuji this year is going to set an all-time record in terms of their unit volume. And then also, you probably saw where they're going to be setting a record in terms of their overall profitability, which is a good thing. That's a great thing, especially coming from the word, the mouth of a CFO, <laughs> Chief Financial Officer. You love that part of it, too. Well, I like the cash flow even better. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get the numbers on the income statement. Yeah, yeah. It's the cash flow that yeah. matters. Right. So what's next? Where, where do you take Subaru from here in the American market? Well, next year, or actually this year, we have a, a, a new launch coming with our new Impreza model. Uh, that's going to be coming out in August of this year. Uh, so that's our next big product launch that we want to get out into the market. And we think with the Impreza, we've got another opportunity where we can continue to grow our market. We think even out, the Outback segment that we compete in, if you think about the vehicles that it competes again, same thing with the Forester segment. You know, we're still at the bottom of that segment, so we still got a long way to go in terms, as good as it is, we still have a long way to go in terms of what we think we can get out of those sales. There's no reason, John, why we can't be selling 100,000 Outbacks a year and 100,000 Foresters a year. The what, products are that good. What's it going to take to do that? Not much more than, than what we're doing now. It's, I think it's just continuing the trend and building on the momentum that we have. Mm -hmm. And what is that? On the retail side and advertising marketing is going to do it? I think it's, yeah, everything that we've currently got going. It's, it's the, well, you know, you've seen our advertising. It's award-winning advertising. Uh, the, the dealer commitment and the dealer involvement is there. So we're very excited about the potential that we've got for the, the brand. We've got, we're getting traffic that we've never seen before. It's, it's very, very exciting for us. Now, three years ago when I talked to you, I said, okay, how'd you guys crack the code? What was it? And you said it was all in the pricing, that rather than put up some MSRP and then throw a bunch of incentive money on it, you pretty much price the cars to the transaction price, actual transaction. That's What's right. kept the momentum going? Well, I think when you look at the, the pricing that we've been able and the price points that we hit in the market, that we've been able to do this without really going incentives. In fact, if you check Auto Data Corp, we're the lowest incentives in the industry. So what we try to do is to create a discipline within our pricing to say that we don't need to have incentives. Yeah, we're going to have to have a low interest rate program in the market. We're not saying we're not going to have that, and we, ha we need to have competitive leasing programs in the market. But we don't need to go to the big cash back. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to do that. The, the cars are priced the way they are. And, and then they hold their value. I mean, look at Automotive Lease Guy. We're number one in residual value. Is that those, right? Yeah. I had no idea. The Blue Book. Oh we're, number, we're number one in resale value in the entire industry. And you combine that with the crash test safety with the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. John, we got it all. Well, you know, one of the things I've heard why you have such good resale or residual values is people don't sell their Subarus. They, they just them hand so them much. down in the family. That's right. So no one's selling them used. So the prices go up. People, that's the thing about Subaru customers. Once they get into the car, 
they want they love it the way it handles the way it drives and therefore they want to keep it within their family and it, as you said it goes down from the you know from the husband to the wife to the daughter to the son and it just stays in the family <laughs> to the dog one of the things that, that is a challenge for us is our customers tend to hold the cars for so long I mean I think we're one of the longest in the industry at 7.2 years is the average length of time hmm. that a customer holds one of our cars we like to turn that owner base over a little bit more so we get more sales <laughs> So what else, what, what am I missing here? What do you want to talk about of uh, what you're doing at Subaru? Well, you know, we're just, uh, we're, we're very fortunate, John, that we've been able to, to part of my job, honestly, is some, sometimes I feel like I'm more of a psychologist than anything because once, it's all about creating that mindset and that positive feeling. And you can tell by the show this year, it's much more positive it here is. than it has been the last couple of years. Yeah. And I think, honestly, the tax cuts that happened at the end of the year last year have gotten the country off to a pretty good start. People now know that their taxes aren't going to go up. They know that they're going to be able to keep more of the money in their pocket. And that's created a very positive feeling among the customers. December was a great month for the industry, and we're obviously hoping that that carries over. And if uh, some of the pundits are right, and I think they are, I mean, I think this year it could be a million to maybe 1.2 million units more than we had in 2010. So that put us at 12.5, 12.7. And if we can continue to keep our share of that, I think we're going to be okay. You know, a very interesting comment you made, no one else has made that, and that, that I've heard, of tying the tax cuts into a big boost in December sales. I think, it, I think that's helped with the psychology of people. And I think that's, that, that, you know, it all goes by how people feel and, how, and what their sentiment is and how confident they are. And, and this has helped to create a little bit more confidence that that people are, it settled things down, at least for the next two years anyway. We'll see what happens in two more years. Tom Dahl, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, John, great I, to be I, with I, you. I keep telling everybody in the business, Subaru is the hottest car company going. Everyone's talking about Hyundai, and, and God bless them. They're, They're off to the races. Job. They're doing a great job. They're doing a great job. But I think people have missed the story, the business story, of how well Subaru has done. It's been, it's been exciting. I'm glad, I'm glad I've been a part of it. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Tom, thanks, thanks so much man. for stopping Thank by. You. Really good seeing Thank you, you Great to see you. Sure too. thing. Take care now. I hope you enjoyed the special edition of AutoLine coming to you from the floor of the 2011 North American International Auto Show in Detroit. We gave you just a little snippet of what's going on here. You can actually find many more interviews and a whole lot more information about what went on here at the show at our website. Check it out. But that does bring us to the end of today's program. So for all of us here at AutoLine, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.